So our purpose statement is equipping people to pursue Christ passionately to impact the culture. And today we have a, a specific Thanksgiving we want to shout out to uh, a couple that has taught our young married class for, for, for 20 years. Kenny and Marianne Caldwell are here with a group of people that they have nurtured. So thank you for that. Thank you for leaving out the uh, vision statement. I appreciate you guys very much. <clears throat> Amen. Okay. So today is Pentecost Sunday, and I just want to rehearse a couple of questions from the New City Catechism before I jump into the text regarding the Holy Spirit. Questions 36 and 37, they're in your worship guide. Question 36, what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? Answer, that He is God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, and that God grants Him irrevocably to all believers. In other words, when you come to faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, who is the seal of God's approval in our lives, according to Ephesians 1. Question 37, how does the Holy Spirit help us? The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, comforts us, guides us, gives us spiritual gifts, and the desire to obey God, and He enables us to pray and to understand God's Word. So He guides, He confirms convicts, he, com he comforts, He gives us gifts, and enables us to pray and receive and understand God's Word. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, it says so well. Question 115 says, why do we preach the Ten Commandments since we will never be able to totally keep it? And the answer one is that it drives us to always appreciate the glory of Christ. And it says this, secondly, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, which is perfection. So we'll never be perfect until we get to heaven. But he says we pray for the enabling power of the Spirit to help us strive and live um, after the Lord. So, so our prayer should be, come Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday. All right, a brief paradigm. God is eternal. He has no beginning and He has no end. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is gloriously good. God is a communicating God. He's given us His Scripture, and He desires our welfare and human flourishing. So that's our presupposition. We start with God is good. He's eternal, He has spoken, and He's given us the Scripture for our flourishing. And then in the book of Colossians, we've been studying Colossians, Paul makes this astounding statement. This is a hymn in the early church, we think, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things were created, were created through him and for him. And in Christ all things hold together. There's a glorious integration of our lives as we walk under the banner of the glory and goodness of Jesus Christ. And when we push that aside 
and turn our backs on God's revelation, there is division and sadness. I read this weekend about a, a beautiful young woman, 47 years of age, has been a model since she was 16, raised in home, according to the biographical sets, by two aunts who were models. And so at the age of 16, she basically dropped out of school and pursued a modeling career and has been involved in that world since she was 16 years of age. Um, and that, that world is a very narrow world that bases your worth on your looks and how you present yourself, and, and, and it's, 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 it's a sad worldview. And then later in life, in her mid-twenties, she decided that she wanted to be part of the LGBT community. She came out in that and became really the cover girl for LGBT materials. And, and then eight years ago, she decided, well, maybe that doesn't define me, and she married a, a wealthy chiropractor from Manhattan. They had a baby boy. The last few couple, couple of years, they've had marital unrest. Um, they, they sued each other for divorce. They were in the midst of a, a horrific, heated exchange about who would raise the child. And so last, I think, Friday night, she went to a Manhattan hotel, checked in, and she jumped from the 25th floor with her seven-year-old boy in her arms. Of course, they both died. And, and I read that, and I thought that, that the world says, if you express yourself the way you want to, there's creative joy, and there is freedom, and there is, but, 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 but we know that's not true. We know that Jesus says with clear, clear statements that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but he's come to give life and to give it abundantly. There's, sin is destructive, it robs, and it kills, and we should weep for those around us. I, I, think, of, I think of the fact that I, I don't weep enough. I think of the example of Christ in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, and, and when he draw near to Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, saying would that you, even you, had known on this day the, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon the other because you did not know the time of your visitation. He said, if you only knew the peace that's offered to you, and we need to believe that was fulfilled in 70 AD when Jerusalem was wiped out and Christ wept over Jerusalem. And the Apostle Paul in Romans, uh, sometimes I, I've preached Romans 1, and I've preached it with kind of a, <clears throat> that people deserve this. And that, that's a terrible way to preach Romans 1. We should always preach Romans 1 with tears. I think Paul wrote Romans 1 with tears. He says this. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nation and the men likewise 
Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I think sometimes we, we read that and we say, yeah, they deserve it. I think we say it with tears. I say that because well, in chapter 9, Paul talks about his countrymen and he says this, he says, I, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, I, I, I could almost wish that I were cut off from eternal life in Jesus if only my brothers would respond to the gospel. So when we say that sin destroys and it brings disintegration and it kills, brothers and sisters, let us do so with great sorrow. So we're talking about the family. We're in Ephesians, excuse me, Colossians chapter 3 and Uh, Let me just read a couple of verses this morning out of Colossians 3, verse 18 and following. Hear the scripture. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents. And everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, last week I dealt with fathers or husbands. Love your wives and do not let them become embittered toward you. Don't be harsh with them. So the family, once again, the Baptist faith and message says this. The family, God has established the family as the foundational institution of human society. It is composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. It is God's unique gift to reveal the union between a Christ and his church. So, so God has established it as a foundation. It gives you a place to stand. And, and we live in a time when people are redefining the family, redefining everything. And if you, if you study history, you'll know that when you turn away from, from, from God's truth, it leads to chaos and decay. It does. So, so the, this, the Scripture gives us a place to stand. Now, let me say this. If you are a believer and you walk under the authority of the Bible, there will be substantial and real healing in your life. Not complete. You're never done with sin. But, but as you walk in the way of the Lord and as husbands, as we love our wives and as we care for them and as we provide and protect and plead for them and as we're pace setters, then, then, then we call forth the power of the Holy Spirit into our home. And, and there will be substantial Real healing. And there, listen, as we walk with the Lord as mothers and dads and children in relationships, there should be laughter and joy and purpose in our homes. And that's what I want for us. That's what I want for us to show before the watching world. It gives us a place to stand. If you redo everything, you turn your back on this, you call forth chaos. Now, the Soviet Union, I read a book recently about the Soviet Union and how they tried to redefine marriage and so in 1917, when the Bolshevik Revolution came around, uh, the, the cry was that marriage is nothing but a, a bourgeois institution. They said, we're going we're gonna to do away with it. It's outmoded. It's outdated. And, and so they, they said it's, uh, the, the family is, as a unit, perpetuates the horror of, of, of inequality through the transfer of private property. Of course, the Bolsheviks were bitterly opposed to the transfer of private property. Unless you're in leadership, then it was okay. 
uh, through inheritance. It's a bourgeois idea. And then in 1918, a year after the revolution, they came forth with a, a law called the Code of Marriage, the Family, and Guardianship. And they said the family would eventually, quote, wither away into nothingness, close quote. And then in 1926, Atlantic Magazine, this is an article from 1926, printed, uh, said the Russian effort to abolish marriage. Let me just read three or four paragraphs. This is the Atlantic Monthly, 1926. says, the, the question whether marriage as an institution should be abolished is now being debated all over Russia. With the violence and depth of passion unknown since the turbulent days of the revolution, that culminated in 1917, last October, a bill eliminating distinctions between registered and unregistered marriages and giving the unmarried consort the status and, pro and property rights of the legal wife was introduced in the Central Executive Committee. The Bolsheviks came to power in 1917. They regarded the family life like every other bourgeois institution with fierce hatred and set out with a will to destroy it. One spokesman, Madame Zbinonovich, said to clear the family out of the accumulated dust of the ages, we had to give it a good shakeup, and we did. A law was passed which made divorce a matter of a few minutes to be obtained at the request of either party in marriage. 99.9% .9 it was the men. Chaos was the result. Men took to changing wives with the same zest, which they displayed in the consumption of the recently restored 40% vodka. One authority said, some men have 20 wives, living a week with one, a month with another. They have children with all of them, and these children are thrown into the streets and lack and have no support. The peasant villages have perhaps suffered the most. An epidemic of marriage and divorce broke out in the country district. Peasants with a respectable marriage of 40 years or more suddenly decided to leave their wives and remarriage. Peasant boys looked upon marriage as an exciting game and change wives with a change of seasons. It was not unusual to find a boy of 20 to have had three or four wives, and a girl of the same age to have had three or four abortions. One last thing, other peasants took advantage of the loose divorce regulations to acquire summer brides. At the hiring, as the hiring of labor in Russia is hedged about with difficulties and restrictions for the private employer, the richer peasants in some districts took to the practice of marrying a strong girl for the harvest and then divorcing her as soon as the crops were in from the field. Chaos. Chaos. Horror. And then in 1926, they passed another act. It's the Family Code of 1926, which is, was a retreat from 1918. They said, well, we're, we're rethinking this. And then in 1936, another family act in the Soviet Union, which is an ideological shift away from the Marxist vision of the family as being poisonous. And then in 1944, 1944, they passed the Family Edict of 1944, which, which elevated and celebrated marriage and family. In fact, in 1944, they passed a law, it's very interesting, that said that if a woman has 10 or more children, they were considered the mother heroine, and they could wear this medal wherever they went, and it was never taken off the books. And then if you have seven children, or, or to nine children, you got the order of maternal glory, but the highest, the highest award was this mother heroine. Now, just quickly, 1944, middle of World War II, the Soviet Union and, and, and the World War II lost 20 to 27 million people. Think about that. We lost 365,000 men. They lost 20 to 27 million. Just think about that. So that they wanted women 
to have children. But see, the definition, if, if you don't have a foundation, the definition of marriage and family, what's good and what's bad, it just changes and it changes and it changes and it changes. We, we, we do not have that. Now, I need to confess to you. Yesterday, I watched it. Okay. I uh, got up early, studied, and went into the sitting room and from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock watched Prince Harry and Princess Meghan. And uh, let me tell you something. It was beautiful. I mean, the, the British know how to do pomp and circumstance. I mean, it was incredible. It was beautiful. And I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm, I think Queen Elizabeth comes walking in, uh, 93. I, I still haven't seen her smile, by the way. Okay. And then uh, Prince Philip comes in. He'll be 96 next month. He had a total hip replacement three months ago. And he walked in like he's ready to play rugby or uh, cricket, whatever they play over there, you know. And I, I was just amazed. And it was, it was really beautiful. So I, I watched it. But I got to tell you, I think I'm probably a little weird. Uh, when, when the two boys walked in together, I, I got emotional. I got emotional. Because I remember 37 years ago, this coming July, in Dallas, Texas, 1981, getting up at 4.30 in the morning with my bride of one year and watching Charles and Diana get married in a fairy tale wedding. Diana was 20 years old. Charles was 32. She got his name backwards. And it was a beautiful day. And then as I saw those boys walk in, I thought, it grieves me that Diana is not here. And I don't, I don't, I don't, be, I don't want to be injudicious, but let me tell you something. Don't, don't think me harsh, but, but I think the reason primarily Diana's not there is because her husband did not protect her. He was not a pace setter. He was not a Boaz type of God that praised her and didn't pray for her. Charles never left his girlfriend, Camelia. So when I hear that the British would begin to like Camelia, I think, well, they're better people than I am. Charles was an adulterer. Really, from day one, precious bride. And I just, it's just a picture of the brokenness of sin and what turning your back on the reality of God does in your life. And so it, that, that was sorrowful for me. But just, just to remind you very quickly, I mean, with, with Downton Abbey and the crown and all this stuff, just, just remind you, that's Yorktown. We beat them. Okay, we won the war. Um, and this, here, this is the George we like, not George III. George Washington is the guy we like. I, I'm worried about going to Johnson Haygood or, or to Clemson or Carolina for football and hearing them play God Save the Queen. No, we still play the Star Spangled Banner, okay? Say that tongue in cheek. Anyway, so a minute, we said last week, be, they're to praise their wives, to be pace hitters, they're to protect, and they're to plead for their welfare. And today we're talking about this verse. 
Now do it with fear and trepidation and great uh, care. But let's go through it. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. But, but, see, the, the problem with this is, is that if, if, you, if you jump in and just start talking about this passage, you, you, you do violence to God's heart. You, you always begin with and glory in the work of Jesus and you worship and then you go to the role relationships. You, you never just start beating people up with husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them uh, or whatever. You, you always glory in what Christ has done and that's very clear in this passage. Paul talks about having a, a, head, a mind that's set upon heaven. He talks about putting things to death and then he talks about being clothed in certain attitudes. He, he talks about letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He talks about letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. He talks about in everything you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give me thanks to God the Father through Him. And then He says, do this. So it always begins in the glory of salvation and in what Christ has done for us. In, 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 in the wonder of who we are in Christ. There's something called the Luzon Covenant of 1974 that talks about evangelism, and it says this, to, to evangelize is to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and he was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures, and, and that as the reigning Lord, he now offers the forgiveness of sins and the liberating gift of the Holy Spirit to all who repent and believe the good news. So I, I just say to you here and in the worship center, have you repented of your sin and received the good news? Have, have you trusted in Christ? You see, if you run to this passage without understanding the glory of a God who is and who invaded human history and who loves us and who's spoken to us and who died on the cross for our sins, you're going to go, this is, I don't get it. So salvation, have you come to faith? I was reading this week about people, how they came to faith and a couple of interesting stories. Very quickly, there's a man named John Harper who was a pastor in Scotland, and John Harper was used of the Lord and was a powerful preacher of the gospel, and so John Harper was invited to Moody Bible Church in the late 19th century, and he went there, and the Lord used him, and he went back to England, and the years went by, and John Harper was married and had a little baby girl, and his wife died, and then after that, uh, Moody Bible Church said, can you come back and lead us again? We remember you fondly. And so he agreed to go back. And so he got his then eight-year-old daughter and his nine-year-old niece. And they boarded a ship in Southampton, England in 1912. And they made the trip across the Atlantic. And as they were going across the Atlantic, um, they hit an iceberg. The ship's name was Titanic. And John Harper woke up his eight-year-old daughter and nine-year-old niece, and he said, we uh, are going to be fine, but just to be safe, I'm going to put you in some, a lifeboat. And he did, and he told them goodbye. And then he went down with the ship. And there was a Canadian there from Ontario, and he was clinging to a piece of wood, and he said that this man he'd met on board the ship, John Harper, bumped him as he was holding on to some material, and he said, he said, young man, are you saved? Do you know Christ as your Savior? And he says, sir, I, I do not. And he says, 
please believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and you shall be saved. And he, he drifted off. And about five minutes later, he drifted back. And he said, young man, have you thought what I said to you? He said, I have, sir. And he says, let me tell you again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And with that, he said that John Harper let go of his wood and just went to the bottom of the sea. Two months later, this man was standing at a church in Ontario, Canada. And he said, I've come to faith in Jesus Christ. I've trusted Christ. And I can say with confidence that I probably in John Harper's last convert. <laughs> that's, that's pretty dramatic. We also read about a very undramatic statement. There's an older man in his mid-90s who moved from England to Connecticut and he had a large farm and God had prospered him. And in his, in his late years, he's standing there looking at his expansive farm and thanking God for the blessings. This was 1750-ish. And, and, and he, as he said, he was sitting there and he thought about the fact that he said, death, death awaits. Am I ready for death? And he said, you know, as I was sitting there, I remembered a sermon I'd heard 75 years before by a man named John Flavel, a great Puritan preacher, died in 1691. So the young man was 14 years of age, 15 years of age. And John Flavel talked about believing in Christ and having the forgiveness of sins and the hope of heaven, that you must be born again. He said, as, as, as I sat there thinking about that, the Lord opened my heart and I surrendered myself to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I thought, 75 years? Wow. That's very undramatic but it's salvation. There comes a point where you cross the line from unbelief to belief. I always think about C.S. Lewis who went from being an atheist, wounded in World War I, to being an agnostic who said, ah, there might be a God, but he can't be defined, to becoming a theist who said, I believe there is a God who made the heavens and the earth. And he stayed there for two years. And then one day he got into a, was going to the zoo and he said, I left my house a theist, and I arrived at the zoo trusting in Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins. That's very undramatic. A trip to the zoo. The question is, have you trusted in Christ? Do you glory in the goodness of Christ? If you do, then we can deal with this passage. The second thing I want to say is this, is that, is that if, if you read much material by people that are Many of them are well-meaning, but they're misinformed. They'll say, well, you know, the, the, the Bible's interesting, but Paul really had it in for women. Paul just did not like women. Um, he was a misogynist. And I'm, I'm going, either, either they haven't studied the historical period of the New Testament, or they're intentionally being dense. The New Testament elevates women. It's amazing. Um, let me just read a couple of things. This comes from a book entitled um, Women's Life in Greece and Rome by a woman named Lefkowitz and another woman named Fant. One is a professor at Wellesby, the other at Michigan State in ancient Roman literature. And they, they, they just have a book that just quotes person after person after law after law. So in 150 B.C., this is 150 B.C., there was a man named Marcus Cato who was well-known and respected, he, his desire was to root out everything that was Greek in the Roman culture. But he said this, he, he wrote that women are called upon to live an abstentious life 
which is to say they are to abstain altogether from wine. And it is our custom for them to kiss their relatives so that they could tell by the smell whether they had been drinking. He reports that women were not only judged, but also punished by a judge as severely for drinking wine as for committing adultery. That's news to me. He had a speech he wrote in Liberty. He said, he said this. This is Marcus Cato, a respected Roman jurist. He said, the husband who divorces his wife is her judge as well as her leader. He has the power if she has done something perverse and awful. If she's drunk wine, she's to be punished. If she's done wrong with another man, she is to be condemned to death. It is also written regarding the right to kill. If you catch your wife in adultery, you can kill her with impunity. She, however, cannot dare lay a finger on you if you commit adultery. This is the law, close quote. So it's a man's world. 300 years later, there's something called Lex Julia, the law of court in the Julia, and talks about this full page of consequences of adultery, so forth and so They're all geared to the women. Very little said about men. It says this, the law declares that wives have no right to bring criminal accusation for adultery, even as regards their own marriage, for while the law grants this privilege to men, it does not concede it to the women. Boom. So you're sitting in a church in South Galatia in 65, 70 A.D. Somebody stands up, and, and, and they read an epistle from a guy named Paul. And this is what it says. And let me tell you something. This is revolutionary. This is mind-boggling. Imagine reading that to the people that received this, this message. Paul says, For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... Neither is there Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for all of you are one in Jesus Christ. He says to this hierarchical society that has very strict castes, there's no slave or free. There's no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. We are all one in Jesus Christ, and we stand before him. So it's, this is revolutionary stuff. Don't, don't come with this stuff about, well, Paul doesn't like women, yada, yada. First of all, it's the Scripture. So I'm talking about submission for a few minutes. Submission is the voluntary yielding of another as designed by God, which calls forth his blessing and joy. And I, I entered this with great reluctance because of the incredible misunderstanding in our culture about this issue. In the year 2000, I was in Orlando, Florida, the Southern Baptist Convention, and we adopted the Baptist Faith Message 2000, and, and, and the press went crazy, front page news, but because this article called The Family was adopted. And let me just read what they went crazy. Well, let me just read the three sentences, and I'll tell you what they went crazy over. And this article says, marriage, the marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people. All this is biblical. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. Here's the clause that caused people to lose it. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband. They said, they quoted, a wife is to submit herself graciously to her husband. They forgot servant leadership. 
And the rest of the statement says, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. Graciously submit? Are you kidding me? This is the year 2000. How, 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 really, it's just reading scripture and writing it out. It's, it doesn't take a, a really bright guy to do this. The Bible says here, wives submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. A couple of comments. The submission, which is a voluntary yielding, is a lifestyle pattern. Um, Submission marks all of our lives if we're believers. Every person in here is called to be in submission. Ephesians 5.21, after Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, in the body of Christ, we're called to submit to one another, to voluntarily yield. What does, what does that mean? In part, it means this, that if a brother or sister comes to you and they have an issue to discuss, it may involve you, it may be, you, you are to patiently listen to them and not discount them. We are to honor each other. We're to honor every member of the body of Christ. We're to give special recognition and privilege to those who, who are the youngest or the weakest. So we are to be in mutual submission to one another. We should, we're to learn from one another. See, submission. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, so you, you, you say, well, we are in the church, God has appointed pastors and elders, and we are to submit to their biblical authority, not tell you where to live or what to drive, but, but to their biblical authority. That They, they are to, to lead, and we are to be voluntarily yielding to them in such a way that we call forth the power of the Spirit and the blessing of God in our lives. See, this is so far from the way we think. And ultra-independence, United States of America. We are to submit to the government. Romans chapter 13, verse 5. Uh, starting in verse 4, uh, he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection to those in authority, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. If, in other words, God has established government. This was written when when the believers were under the thumb of the Roman occupation. It's amazing. And yet Paul says we are to submit to the governing authorities. Unless they ask us to do something that's unbiblical, then we go to Acts 5 where Peter says we must obey God and not man. But, but, but we are to respect our leaders. We're to pray for them, 1, Peter, 1 Timothy 2. So, so we live in an atmosphere. I, I've told you before, I don't watch the news. Every time I watch the news, people are belittling and making fun of the person they disagree with. There's no dialogue. And, and so we live in an age where we belittle our leaders, we, we, we demean them, and that's just not biblical. We are to submit to those who are in authority in the government, as, as far as we can as believers. 
We are to submit to those who are over us in the marketplace. We're to work in, in a way as if we're working for the Lord and not for men. Colossians and 1 Peter says that. So, so what I'm saying is that this is fitting in the Lord. It, it is a, a good thing. The second very quick thing before three quick points is, is that submission is not inferiority or superiority. It is fitting in the Lord. I love this. I want you to get this. This happens, Genesis 2, before sin entered the human race, before the fall. It says this, Genesis 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. There's that word fit again. It's fitting. Stop. The word helper is also used of God in the Old Testament. God is our helper. So helper obviously doesn't mean inferior. Verse 19, so out of the ground the Lord God has formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds and of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. There's that word again. So God gave Eve to Adam and Adam to Eve before the fall, and they were mutually beneficial to each other. That's God's desire. So, submission, three points. Wives, submit yourselves, voluntary obedience to the servant leader who is your husband, for this is fitting in the Lord. Number one, submission is the disposition to honor, affirm, and respect the husband as the servant leader of the home. To honor, affirm, and respect uh, Ephesians 5, verse 33 says this, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respect. So last week, after I, I preached on Boaz and Ruth and what men should do, and I said that, that men should praise their wife and be a pace setter and provide for their wives and pray for their wives, the four Ps. I'm standing down here and somebody's talking to me and there's an attractive young couple, a really kind, very faithful couple here and they, they came up in their late 20s and waited patiently for me to finish my conversation and she walked to me and she said this. She said, Pastor Brown, and her husband was like, what are you going to do? She says, I want you to meet a Boaz man. My husband is my Boaz. And he went, Whoa. and they walked off. And I went, Yes! You got it. You got it. Listen to me, wives. If you respect your husband, if you praise him in public, deal with things behind closed doors. That's what marriage is. If you build him up, he will walk over hot coals for you. More picturesque statement. He will run through a plate glass window in European swimwear, which is, man, that's just a hard thing to do, put on European swimwear, but you'll do it. Now, I, I will bet anyone here a Chick-fil-A meal on Sunday, okay? <laughs> if you ask any man here, had you rather be loved or respected, the men will say, respected, respected. This man would. And so part of the fitting together is, the Bible says, 
Wives, respect your husband. Honor them. Affirm their leadership. The second point is that it's fitting in the Lord. It's fitting in the Lord. Unless the Bible forbids it or common sense denies it, you, you follow the servant leader. It's just fitting. That's the way it works. Somebody's got to be the servant leader. God has said, the men will. The men will. It's just fitting in the Lord. We have all these debates and we have all these questions afterwards. And man, in the 70s and early 80s, we, had, we dealt with this and people asked questions. And there were just some of them, it's just use your common sense. I was at a conference one time and a guy said that, uh, that a, a wife, a man, father who was really into sports, his son had, had a major break in his leg and they'd taken the cast off and the orthopedic surgeon said, you really can't play sports for several weeks because the leg could break again. And there was an all-star game and this young man was, 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 was going to be a first-round draft pick according to his dad in a few years. And so he said, I want him at the all-star game. I don't care what the doctor says. And the wife did not bring him. And she said, was I wrong? And I thought, no, you're using common sense. It's called being married to a man who has a temporary moment of being an idiot. You know, you use common sense. It's, but this is fitting in the Lord. The third point, the third point is this. That this type of attitude yearns, prays, desires for your husband to be the man God has called him to be. So you pray for him. You care for him. You let him know that he's incredibly important to you. And, and, and as you do that, and God builds us, our homes reflect the glory of Christ. I want that. I want that. Let us pray. For all of these all of these very, uh, at times, difficult, weighty issues begin with the knowledge of our salvation in Christ. And I pray that we would preach the cross and that people would believe the good news. And, and Lord, as, you, as, as people repent and believe the good news, and as you deal with us, Holy Spirit, that our hearts and our minds would be captivated not by the zeitgeist, not by our favorite websites, not by the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post, as good as they may be, but our minds will be primarily molded by the reality of Jesus and the spoken word of God, the Bible. And as, and as we, we, we do that, I pray that, that as we live in the way that's honoring to you, that, that you would bring forth the laughter of heaven into our homes. That as we husbands um, protect and are pace setters and praise and plead, provide, um, that, that, that our, and love our wives tenderly, that our wives would respect us. Oh, God, and, and that our children and our children's children would see it and their contemporaries would see it and it would spread like a glorious wildfire in a culture that's constantly redefining marriage and gender and whatever. Lord, we, we help us to see that those social experiments do not end in gladness but in sorrow. So let us be resolute 
and abounding in the work of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, shape us to love you in Jesus' name. Amen.